questions. We're glad you're here today in the worship center, out in the pavilion, and online with us. And we're going to continue in our series, looking at God's word. And we're moving from this time of intense teaching, intense confusion on the disciples' part, and then this beautiful prayer, the last two weeks in John 17 that we've been able to look at. But today we get to the action. We're moving into the narrative of when Jesus gets arrested, and it's the beginning of that next sequence. So if you have a Bible today, if you'd make your way to John chapter 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John 18, if you have notes that you picked up in the back, if you didn't, you can get those, or if you want to pull up our app and use those online, that would be great as well. But we move into this next section, and we're um, excited to see just all the things that we're going to look at today. A couple things for you as you're making your way there. Uh, Discover Trinity is this great thing that we do that helps people understand our core values. What is Trinity all about? And it actually is a bit of just a walking tour of our campus where we've strategically put our core values and then has some explanation. Our own Steve Springstead leads that. It's after this service today, right out at the Start Here booth if you want to make your way there. And then Steve will take you on a bit of a, a tour, but also share with you what is important to Trinity Church so that you can know, is this, is this a, a thing that really aligns, a local church that aligns with what I believe God says should matter most? And so we'd love for you to be a part of that if you've never uh, taken advantage of that before. One last thing, just as a quick announcement. Man, we, we haven't made much of it because it's really been in this seminal stage, but I am so excited about a group of people that God has been bringing together dating back to November on these first Fridays of November, December, and January with the whole intent, how do we take action uh, one of the key things that we heard Nancy Morris, she was going over our um, churchwide survey uh, almost a year ago. It was in April that she came and kind of gave the results of that. And one of the things she talks about in, in that survey, kind of looking at our just our demographics of the people who took it, is that we need to grow younger. There's a simple reality of that. We need to grow younger. Most churches in America do. And so one of the things that we did is we put the collection of people who are in that young family, young adult group, as well as those who are young at heart, and we drew them together and we started asking the question, and it really started with the very basic, is, is she right? Is that something we should do, give energy to, to really kind of come together to see us and plant initiatives to grow younger with intentionality. And those groups answered very affirmatively, not just in a yes, we should, but as they began to come up with some great ideas that would help us grow younger, we did a very much a, a democratic process of people coming up with ideas and voting on them. The, we came up with two really great initiatives, both very different from one another. We formed teams around them, and you're going to be hearing about them in the near future. One, a main event of just getting young families and young adults together to just kind of connect relationally, and the other to be able to grow in our walk with Jesus through a discipleship mentoring program. So both initiatives are on the go. You'll hear more about them, but I just wanted you to hear the heart behind that as you begin to hear those initiatives kind of bubble to the top, that this is something we're so excited about as leaders at Trinity of going, God, how can we be more intentional 
to see you really connecting dots, you really helping young families, young adults really find a home and really grow in their relationships here at Trinity Church. So just wanted to give you the ethos behind that. You can go, you saw the graphic up on the screen. You can go to our website, Undergrowing Younger Initiative, and you can see some more information about that. But I just wanted you to hear about that as more of the details of those events begin to emerge. So something we're excited about. Well, here we are. We're in John chapter 18. And what we have been seeing in this sequence, we've called this section of John, This is Love, because we're not only seeing Jesus' acts of loving kindness towards his disciples, we're hearing of the way that he teaches about not only his love for them, but their needed love for one another. And then what we're going to see now as we march towards the cross, the demonstration of sacrificial love, even to the point of offering Jesus' own life for the sins of the world. So as we're in that sequence, we've been through a lot of teaching, even last week and the last two weeks, almost getting this unique perspective, almost as though you're kind of in someone's thoughts as we hear of Jesus's prayer for himself, for the 11, and for us. We were just blown away by that, that Jesus thought to pray for you and me, those who had put their faith in Jesus through the testimony of the disciples. And here we are 2,000 years later, still a part of this thing called the church. So as we dive into today, now we kind of take a turn, and in this part, this first part of chapter 18 of John, we're going to encounter Jesus being arrested. One of the things I really want you to see from the very beginning today, I want you to kind of raise your gaze and have your radar up for this, how many people are going to come in contact with the power and the authority of Jesus in this short passage, this part of John 18 alone. And yet every single one of them, when they are literally not just hearing about, but literally experiencing the power of Jesus, still refuse to believe in him. And we're going to see that and we're going to process what does that mean not only then, 2,000 years ago in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does it mean today in the lives of people in my relational world who have yet to put their faith in him? That's what we're going to get to today. So let's dive in. We're in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all, watch this, watch John's commentary, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Look at verse six. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Hmm, gonna be good. All right, so at some point, let's kind of walk. We started this section in John 13. This, what we call the upper room discourse, Jesus is having this really intense, at times confusing a clarifying conversation with the disciples. He says at the end of chapter 16, now let's go. 
or 15, I'm sorry, and they're walking on the way. And at some point, this prayer that we've read in these last two weeks must have happened on the way because of what we just read in chapter 18. They're not yet to the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, John's gospel, different from Matthew, Mark, Luke in terms of the content it's bringing, this fully orbed picture, most of John's content not found in the other three. And so now it becomes really powerful when we compare the other three gospels and their account to John's. They all align. John's just sharing us some information we didn't have over here. And one of the things the other three gospels talk about is that Jesus is ultimately going to be praying in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. The other gospels give much ink to that part of the story and even talking about some of the things he's praying. This is the place where you would remember Jesus praying and agonizing over what is about to happen, even sweating drops of blood, this intense time with the Father. And what is he asking him three times? Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way you can accomplish what you sent me here to do, then me going to the cross, and it's not just dying a death, it's the white-hot fury of the wrath of God all poured out on him for all sin, for all time. You can imagine, just begin to imagine the agony of that thought. And interestingly enough, Jesus, in praying this prayer, keeps hearing a no. Now, whether it was an audible no or the simple fact that no circumstances have changed, Jesus understands, I've, I've asked the Father three times, take this cup from me. He has said no each time. And resolute, Jesus comes out of that garden, and then John picks up the action that Judas and this detachment of soldiers come to him. That take this cup from me talk is going to be important in just a minute. So remember that when we look more into John so that's kind of a bringing the gospel accounts together and realizing when we read John's account, it might seem that they literally just walked into the garden and here comes uh, Judas with these Roman soldiers. Well, back to the other three gospels, there must have been a significant time that they're there in the garden before Judas brings them for those, that kind of agonizing prayer that Jesus has. The number of these Roman soldiers, by the way, the Greek word that we just read, the word detachment, it's more specific in that language. And what's fascinating is that number could have ranged anywhere from 600 to 200 soldiers. Hundreds of soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and they come weapon, weaponized. They're ready for a brawl. So that's the scenario. They're, they're thinking this is going to be intense. And yet, once again, we see John's commentary, and he plays out Jesus' intent that he was completely aware, completely aware of everything that was about to happen to him. And that's what's so important is that we note that Jesus is never the victim. Jesus is never the victim in this story of him going to the cross. It's always with intent. Now, there are those who are responsible for the way that they brutalized him and ultimately murdered him. Responsibility remains, but it's never a sense of, oh, if Jesus would have just not been there at that moment. That's the way my brain works, and I think yours does too. God, if, if I'm experiencing this trial, I'm experiencing this difficulty, if I would have just not been there in that time. I wouldn't have been in the car accident. I wouldn't have had this unpaid bill. I wouldn't have that, that problem with that person. 
Whatever you fill in the blank, note that, don't apply that to this scenario related to Jesus. He is resolute. He is absolutely intentional in what he's doing, making himself available to be arrested and ultimately to go to the cross. Look in your notes. Jesus is not only avoiding, not only not avoiding, so double negative, Jesus is not only not avoiding what is to come, but he's walking straight towards it. He's walking straight towards it. And I want to keep reiterating, why does Jesus do this? For no other reason than the fact of how much he loves you. That's why this series name is so significant to me. Everything is born out of love. Born out of obedience to the Father, born out of intent for mission, of why he came, yes, but ultimately all of that is grounded and his intense love for you. It was the only way that you and I could be redeemed, reconciled, and reclaimed by God. No other way than through the blood of the spotless lamb of God. So he assumes this rightful role of leadership, comes to the front of the, different, of the group that he's with, the 11 disciples, and he asks them who they're looking for. Notice he knows, right? He knowing well what they're there for, he knows. But when they say back to him, we've come to look for Jesus of Nazareth, it sets up this opportunity for him to simply say two words that we've seen all over John's gospel. Ego and me. I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Ego and me. I am. We've heard him say that when he talked about being the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the doorway. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. He has made these intentional statements. But there was a statement in John 8 that we read that especially was powerful and connects well to this, is that when he's in the middle of this heated conversation with Jewish religious leaders, he says to them, before Abraham was born, ego and me, I am. When they heard that, and by the way, he didn't fill it in anything beyond that, I am the nothing, Ego in me, I am. They returned in response with rocks. They turned on him quickly to stone him, and he evaded them. But in this case, what I want you to see, that's not the situation this time. This time, when Jesus says, ego in me, these manly, professional Roman soldiers all get blown back onto their tushes. I just want you to get into this thought for just a moment. John's gospel is the only of the four, there's four, only of the four that accounts for this. And when Jesus says, who are we looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, ego, and me, they all fall back and fall on the ground. Let's just try to think about being in that moment for just a second. You're in the sixth row of a group of hundreds of soldiers. They all come falling back upon you. You've only heard this guy, this rogue rabbi, say two words. 
And yet you're on your can, trying, you're disoriented and trying to figure out what just happened to us. Who on earth have you come to bind and take to trial? I'm telling you, if it was me, I'm running as fast as I can the other way. This is a whole different kind of power than a sword or a shield had ever demonstrated. There is something incredibly significant about the power that Jesus has demonstrated to them in their midst. When has this ever happened before? Who is it that simply utters a phrase and we all fall to the ground? Simple question for you. How does something like that not lead to faith? How does something like that at least not lead to, hey guys, maybe we should rethink this? But it's interesting that the Roman soldiers, there's no indication that Judas or them have any changing thought of mind. And they're going to be intent to do what they've come to do. That's what we see next, John 18, verse 7. Again, he being Jesus, he asked them while they're on the ground, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Kind of like, what are you doing there? Get up. If you're looking for me, then let these, the 11 with him, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So he goes second round of Q&A between Jesus and the soldiers. Who'd you say you want again? Jesus of Nazareth. I already told you I'm he. Let's, uh, let's figure this out. But look what he says in great thoughtfulness, leadership, and power. If you come for me, that's fine. Let these go. Let these men go. I'm overwhelmed when I read about what Jesus was going to enter into and how much he could have used that support, how, how much he could have used that camaraderie to at least be in this trial scenario with him, but he intentionally says to the Roman group of, of soldiers, please let them go. You didn't come for them, you came for me. I've seen one too many movies where leaders use their followers for shields. And Jesus does just the opposite. He shields them. A great quote from a leadership guru, Max Dupree. I think he might have had this in mind when he said, leaders don't inflict pain, they bear pain. Leaders don't inflict pain, they bear it. And that's exactly what Jesus did. John notes that this was a fulfilling action. He quotes back to a statement. And it's interesting, if you go to the footnote in your Bible, you'll see that Jesus, in a sense, is quoting himself. The footnote in my Bible takes me back to John chapter 6. A few chapters ago, this is in this powerful moment when so many would-be followers are leaving Jesus by the, by the horde. And in that context, this is what it says, verse 39 of chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those he has given me. There's that quote, but raise them up for the last day. So John is in his commentary saying, 
in his commentary saying, Jesus said something like this. Most times when we see Jesus quote something, it's from the former covenant, from the Old Testament. Here, he's quoting himself from chapter 6. But I would say, thinking of the immediate context of what we've just looked at in Jesus' prayer, I think he might have also, or instead of, been referring to something he prayed. Just two weeks ago, John 17, verse 12, while this is him talking to the Father about the 11, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost. Same verbiage. None has been lost except the one you doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. None have I lost, Father, except the one that was already forecast who would betray me. So either way, Jesus is being good to his word. Jesus is acting consistently with what he set out to do. I'm shielding them from pain, not causing them to endure it for me. And we know there's more to the story. They would incur plenty of pain upon Jesus' ascension in the beginning of the church. But in this moment, this is what Jesus is doing as the good shepherd. Here's the wild part. So in John's gospel, this is what Jesus says, and he's keeping them from more uh, difficulty. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew says, not that that didn't happen, but he says another part to the story is that these same disciples that Jesus is protecting would all abandon him. Matthew Chapter 26, verse 56, then all the disciples deserted him, deserted Jesus, and fled. Can I ask a question? Who stands up for people that you know are in just moments from now going to abandon you? Who stands up and defends, provides a barrier of protection from those of those that are just going to walk away from you. Jesus does. Because this is love. His love for them, knowing full well what they would do, never diminished his actions towards them. It's a kind of love that truly blows us away. Because we stop and think about what would I do in that situation? You've come for me. Don't worry about these guys. They're all leaving anyway. Let's do it. Not so with Jesus. Let them go. John's gospel gives us something that the other three don't. It gives us the name of the man whose ear was cut off, Malchus. Now, this is an interesting story. If you've grown up in the church, this part might be a little weird to you as you rethink it, because you're like, how precise must have Peter have been? Stand right there. I'm just going to take the ear. Can I remind, it's possible, but can I remind you, it's more of, I'm going for the throat, and I missed, and all I got was the ear. So don't, don't walk into that thinking, I'm just trying to maim him a little bit. Peter's out to kill. And, and what is powerful to me in this sequence, when we get to know not just what happened, but we get to know Malchus, think about him a little bit. Here's some things a very little bit we know. We know that he was a servant to the high priest, so he was all around Jewish religion all the time. That's what that role would have incurred. He was always around religious gatherings and religious ceremonies for that time as a servant to the high priest. 
He was steeped in it. And we can also assume, like we said a minute ago, that Peter wasn't aiming at his ear. And some, some might have said he was pretty lucky to survive that skirmish and only have lost an ear, nonetheless his own life. But what's powerful about the sequence is that there's another part that only Luke's gospel includes. It's interesting how the other three finish right there. We got a, a one-eared guy. Luke chapter 22, verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Let's take to, to armor here. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. He touched the man's ear and healed him. He touched the man's ear and healed him. Can you imagine just the range of emotions that Malchus must have been feeling in this very short sequence? Jesus has identified himself. The soldiers are going to move in and they're going to bind him to take him away for a trial. In that moment, though, in the space in between, Jesus's followers reach out with some sort of violent response. And you were just standing there. Might have seen the flash of, of metal and duct and somehow just lost an ear. What does it mean to go from ear intact to ear lost to ear healed? All within probably about 90 seconds. Physically, I don't know how a body goes through all that, but emotionally, there must have been some great therapy sessions on the backside of that. Therapy or not, what do you do when someone that you've come to arrest heals you? What do you do when the unbridled power of God interfaces with your life? in such a way that there is no other. I mean, we'll talk about things that happen in our lives. We'll go, there's no other explanation than God. Can I tell you, you're in a garden staring him in the face. He just picked up your ear and healed it. There's no other explanation than Jesus in this moment. What do you do when you encounter that kind of power, that kind of authority of God, even in a section, even in a sequence when you're supposed to be against him there to arrest him. Look in your notes. What did this encounter with the one who has authority to heal detached ears do in the life of Malchus? I looked and couldn't find anything in church history that would tell us anything specifically of what does happen. I don't know. But you know what I do know? I do know people that have experienced incredible, life-saving, just amazing, miraculous things that God has done on their behalf and chalk it up to the universe. Chalk it up to, I was incredibly lucky. And my point is, Malchus wouldn't be the first who experiences personally the power and authority of God only to miss what all that means and what his response should be. 
And this is another example in the garden that night of Jesus's power, but I would say Jesus's love. Jesus, he has no um, dog in the race, as it were, if Malchus has a working ear or not. But you got to remember, Jesus didn't come just to live and die and raise again for the people who liked him. He came to do that for all of us. So his love for Malchus was just as true as his love for Peter. This is love. And what is Jesus' response to all the chaos and ensuing violence? That's not how I'm going to respond to being arrested. Put away your sword. That's of no interest to me that this becomes some sort of violent response. In Matthew's gospel, he actually tells the disciples they have, he has no need of them to take up arms because he has his, the armies of heaven that could respond in just a moment. Matthew 26, verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions, that would be the equivalent of 60,000 angels. Why are we messing around with swords? Put it away. If I had any need to defend myself, I'd call upon the father and angelic hosts would be here like that. But that's not what I'm doing. And remember what he said at the last part of what we read in John 18. Why would I fail to drink the cup for why I've come? Remember how I said that would be important today? Remember in the prayer in the garden, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Moments Minutes, maybe hours before, Jesus is begging the Father if there's any other way, but when he is completely aware there is no other way, now resolute, why would I do anything to move aside from the cup that I'm to drink? I want you to see that both and are true. The agonizing over what he was about to do and what it was going to be like, but as well, the resolution to say, and I'm going to do it. Both were true in the experience of Jesus, and he is never, ever anything but intentional. Intentional in his obedience, intentional on fulfilling his mission, and intentional with his love. We wrap it up, John 18, verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials, they arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Jesus willingly submitted to these soldiers. He was bound, arrested, and brought to the home of this uh, religious leader. Not the high priest, but that man's father-in-law. I just wonder if any of these soldiers in that moment, as they were binding his hands... We're just wondering, I wonder what he's going to do to me. I wonder who he's going to call upon. I wonder if he's going to say, ego a me again. I don't know what was going through their minds, but I've got to think there was a degree, a right sense of fear of what this guy could do to me. But Jesus willingly has his hands bound and is taken to this Jewish religious leader, this man named Annas.
all throughout this portion of John's account, John is going to continue to show us things through a very relational lens, meaning he's not just going to give a blow by blow, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Some of the other gospel accounts read a little more like that, but John is going to name people. John is going to tell us who is in this scenario, who's in this conversation, to whose house was Jesus taken. And now, moments later, from all this chaos in the garden, Jesus is in the living room of a guy named Annas. Annas. John doesn't provide um, titles, but he gives us real names. And it was John who chronicled the words that Caiaphas had spoken. He makes this allusion back to something he told us in John 11. This is what uh, Caiaphas said in that chapter. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. So the high priest that year had already kind of put out there, I know how this is going to end. It's better for this guy to die than for us to lose everything to Rome. But I want you to notice the pattern of what we have seen today and the people who have interacted personally, not hearsay, not second, third, fifth hand, but personally with the power and authority of Jesus. Hundreds of soldiers have come bearing torches and lanterns and swords into a garden, into a very, uh, a, a place where violence doesn't happen. This is a place where it is calm and it is a place of solace. They have interacted with the power and authority of Jesus when he simply said a phrase and it blew them back. Think of the interaction he's had with Malchus when he's healed a man's ear who just moments before had it cut off, and now he is in the presence of this father-in-law of the high priest, and he's going to begin, we'll see next week, taking questions and responding. This all is going on. These are all people who interface with him, and what we see, not only do they have these experiences with the power and the authority of Jesus, but none of them respond by bending the knee and saying, you are Lord. Every one of them is resolute in their understanding that they are there to get rid of him, not to worship him. There was boatloads of evidence of Jesus' deity, demonstrations of his love, his compassion, his power, not just towards those who followed him, but this night towards those who came to arrest him. Question, what does it take Soldiers, What does it take, Malchus? What does it take, Annas? What does it take for a demonstration for you to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? But maybe the question that's on our minds today, what does it take, person in your relational world who has all kinds of evidence that Jesus is who he says he is? and yet still refuses to stiff-arm him and not want anything to do with the risen Savior. What does it take? Well, I think this, I think it's gonna take a few things. I think chief of which is you. Your interactions, your consistently demonstrable love, your prayers, 
for them, your intentional invitations. And though they stiff arm you again and again, it never gives us the out to say, God, I have tried, I have loved, I have prayed for days, for weeks, for some, for years. And I've seen no change in their attitude, no change in their response. What can I tell you? That would really be a bummer if you were responsible for them changing. It would be really easy to take that to heart and just go, I'm a failure. But Ephesians 2 tells us that every single person, every human being on the planet is born dead on arrival spiritually. You can't wake the dead, and only God gets to do that. And so as much as you keep showing love, as much as you keep showing intentionality, as much as you keep praying, God, get a hold of my spouse's life. God, get a hold of my neighbor's life. God, get a hold of my adult child's life. Do something. As much as you want that, Recognize that's always on God. And he chooses, gives us the privilege of being used. For as many in here that are frustrated today that the people in your relational world haven't responded more favorably to the gospel, there are some wonderful stories in this room. Literally in this room. And that's what we say, God, I'm happy to partner with you. I'm happy to be a part of your mission, knowing the results are not on me. But God, I'd love to be used in his life. I'd love to be used in her life. And I'm just going to keep doing what you've called me to do in the process. One of our core values is that we're called to influence your world with Jesus. Your calling is to influence. If you go on the Discover Trinity conversation experience today, you're gonna come up to a window on the second floor of the ministry building, and you're gonna see this beautiful wording, looking out onto the freeway, looking out onto South Redlands, and you're gonna realize that's what that means. My calling is to be someone who's influential in my relational world for the gospel. And what's birthing that, what's motivating that is simply the very same love that Jesus has for me that I have for the people he's placed in my world. In your notes, as we begin to approach Easter a month away, would we be a people on mission, living on purpose, praying with devotion about those that God has supernaturally, strategically placed in our lives? Would we be those people in this next month as we approach Easter a people who are focused, a people who are prayerful, and not giving God a timeline that something has to happen on Easter Sunday, but in this season when we have everything to be excited about. The empty grave changed everything about our future. God, would you be at work in the lives of people I'm praying for, I'm loving, that are in my relational world? Would they know this love you have for them that you've so shown to me? And I can't wait to hear the stories of how God uses you in people's lives. Let's pray. So Father, today we intersect with this chapter, John 18, of 
this narrative, the action gets heated, there's conflict. And we are blown away when we see people interact with the power and authority of Jesus yet, not to any kind of apparent saving faith, but more and more pushing away. God, there are people in our relational worlds that do the same thing. And it's not for lack of evidence. It's not for lack of influence. And it breaks our hearts, God, because we don't see change. We don't see there being any interest in responding to what they need the most. So, Father, instead of being discouraged, instead of taking that pressure on ourselves and feeling like failures, would we keep bringing them to you? And God, whether you use us personally or use other people in their relational world, we don't care. We just want to see them come to put their faith in you, recognize your love for them and their need for you, and rejoice with them forever around your throne. God, for many in our minds right now, that just seems like the farthest thought we could ever have. But we know better. We know you're in the business of changing lives. If you're here today and you've never responded to the gospel, this great news of what Jesus has done by dying in your place, could I just tell you, you can right now. Would you A, admit? Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admit that even though God created the world perfectly, you and every other human being has walked away from him. There's a problem in the relationship and it's you. Would you B, believe? Believe that this Jesus we've talked about who goes to the cross out of his love for you Believe that he not only lived a sinless life, he died a sacrificial death, and he ultimately was raised supernaturally, all for you. Would you see, choose? Would you choose to say, Jesus, I put my confidence in what you've done, not in what I can do. This is not about being more religious. It's about being surrendered to the one who has placed his life in place of mine. And would, God, I want to live my life following Jesus' example. You can pray that kind of prayer this morning, and I would just encourage you, don't let another moment go by until you do. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for Jesus' willingness to go to the cross and be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He makes us right. We love you, and we pray in his name. Amen.